I want to, uh, to preface this morning, uh, before we look at our distinctive, um, just by acknowledging that there's a real dilemma that we have in life in balancing things and keeping things straight. Um, one of the tricks with uh, our lives is to figure out how to appropriately pursue approval. So we want our gifts to be recognized, right? You want your efforts to be noticed. You want your life to matter to someone. And so we pursue approval of other people. It feels good if you've ever been uh, pulled into your boss's office and uh, been given a bonus and been encouraged that you met your goals or you're working hard. Uh, That's encouraging. It's encouraging to be thanked for a way that maybe God used you in the life of another person. Um, It's encouraging to wake up in the morning and feel like you're contributing to society and planet Earth in a way that's noticeable, right? It's not just a personal thing. But the difficulty with this, of course, is that all these different areas that we have in our lives, these different spheres, compete with one another, right? They're they're, uh, competing for attention and energy and resources, and not everything wins all the time, and so criticism may come our way. Just one person could have a supervisor and a spouse and kids, an extended family, a neighborhood, a political party, a church, a conscience, sports teams that you're involved with, a group of friends, and all of those things may be competing for the resources of your life, and you've got to figure out who gets what. Oftentimes, because our resources are limited, it means that balls drop, and one area has to be actually sacrificed for another, and so life is this balancing act. And so how, my question for us this morning is, how do we manage this? How should we prioritize things? And do so in a way that ultimately God is pleased with. Not just that we think, but, but how, how do we organize our lives in a way that God is pleased with? Do you find yourself struggling with this? Juggling everything? You feel like you got 30 balls in the air and you're just trying to keep an egg from splatting on the ground all the time? Now you might be thinking this whole time, well, who cares about the approval of other people? Right? And in a certain way you'd be right, and in a certain way you'd be wrong. Because seeking the approval of others can, can go sideways, it can backfire, but not in every case. What matters is that we have the right pecking order for the kinds of approval that we seek. That's the key. That's the, that's the important thing. So for those of us who follow Jesus Christ who are here, God's approval matters most. Right? He's like the ace of spades. Like There's just nothing higher than him. So what does God say then about this balancing act? Can he help us manage these seemingly endless demands? Well, we've been looking at distinctives as a church, what makes us us. Uh, We've covered prayer, loving sacrificial fellowship, shepherd team leadership, family discipleship, and gospel-driven corporate worship. And this morning, we're going to cover the distinctive that, um, ironically enough, has brought about the most confusion, and that's simplicity. Okay, so we're going to look at that one this morning. We've got one more after this to go uh, to get through all our distinctives. Um, I think the reason it's been the most difficult to explain is because it comes with a lot of assumptions. Um, And so I'm going to be actually preaching and teaching on a lot of those assumptions that we bring to this for most of our time this morning. And once we get that clear, then we can talk about what simplicity actually is. So let me read this distinctive for us, and I'll, I'll explain the assumptions behind it. Here's what it says. Simplicity. We fight for simplicity in our programming to allow time for disciples to be faithful to Christ in every area of life, home, work, neighborhood, etc. Therefore, we strive to only plan corporate programs and events designed to fulfill our mission. Now, as you look at that distinctive, it's in your little sheet thing in your bulletin, there's one really important word that I want to point out. Any guesses? Like seriously, anyone, anyone got any guesses? Fight. What's that? Fight. Fight's a good one. We put that in there on purpose. Simplicity faithful. Simplicity faithful. Yeah, there we go. Good job, guys. You get the faithful. Faithful is the word I was looking for. So faithful. Faithful to whom? It says faithful to Christ, right? Faithful to Christ. Faithful in what? And what, what would that look like? Well, in every area of life, it says. And that really summarizes where we're going this morning in this little phrase. All of life, all to Jesus. 
all of life, all to Jesus. What I want to start with is by fast-forwarding to the end of our lives. Because every time, if you ever entrusted someone with something, there's always kind of an accounting or a reckoning at the end of it. Okay? So, for example, you, your review is a reckoning, at, you know, your, your review at work is a reckoning for what you've been doing for the past year, right? You had goals or there's expectations. If you borrow someone's truck, they probably expect to get it back in the same condition with maybe the same amount of gas. If you're a cashier at a store and you, you clear your uh, cashier, you know, where the money's held, the numbers have to add up to what the sales were for the day. There's an accounting, there's a reckoning when someone's trusted with something. For our daughter Ella, who we adopted from China, every year we have to write a report uh, that shows our care for her over the last year, for the first five years, so that uh, China knows that she's actually being cared for. So whenever anyone's get, given a stewardship over something or is entrusted with something, there's, there's kind of a, a future meeting that's assumed that's going to happen, right, to account for that stewardship. And so that's why we're fast-forwarding to a scene where uh, Jesus actually describes how we'll be held accountable for how we spend our lives. And if we can see how that works, then maybe that'll show us a little something about how we're supposed to be faithful now. Does that make sense? If we, by fast-forwarding to the end. So we're going to fast forward to the end, and we're actually going to look at someone's life, uh, secondly, who's an example of this kind of balance we'll talk about. And we'll have two encouraging things uh, that we'll wrap up with. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you're not there already, to Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. 25, 14 through 30. Go ahead and stand, uh, if you're able to, and I'll go ahead and read this for us. This is a parable that Jesus teaches about this kind of scene of accountability for stewardship. Here's what it says. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents? Here I have, five, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, and also who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, who has will, be, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You can be seated. In all of our hunt for approval... We are after six words, aren't we? Six simple words. Well done, good and faithful servant. If you had to sum up all of life and what we're really doing here on this rock, it's pursuing those six words. And if you were somehow able to be faithful and excellent in every other area of life, but never heard those six words, your life would be a disaster. 
Those six words are the goal. And that's why I want to spend uh, some time looking at four different things from this text that we just read, simple things, to help us understand this final scene so that we can know what it means to be faithful. So first, in verse 14, it says, For it will be like a man. And he tells the story. What is it referring to? That's always important to, to ask when you're reading the scripture. If you look back at chapter 25, verse 1, it says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like, and it gives a uh, parable. And Jesus continues in that scene, so the it is the kingdom of heaven, God's rule, his reign. That, what, what is it going to be like for God to rule in this way? And if you look at all the, the verses around it and all the subtitles and all the headings, you'll see that this section of Matthew is one of the five blocks of teaching that's talking about when Christ is going to come back and when he's going to judge. So that's the setting. This, the it is referring to the kingdom of God returning in this judgment. Now, remember, keep in mind that judgment is actually a neutral thing. Whenever you got a grade in school, you were judged, whether you got an A or an F. Okay, so judgment isn't necessarily, you kind of say that word and it's like, I don't like judgment. But judgment, just like when you pick a babysitter, you use judgment, right? Who can I trust? So judgment is a neutral thing that God comes to bring, and that's this kind of the setting, that's the environment of what we're, this parable. So that's the first thing, that the it is referring to God's kingdom come in judgment. Number two, these servants, they were entrusted with something that was really valuable, when you read talent, you might think, oh, you give this guy five abilities and this guy two abilities. No, a talent was actually a measurement of, of currency, of worth. It was a lot of money. It was the equivalent, one talent was the equivalent of 20 years of a laborer's wages. It was a lot. So this, this wasn't just here's five bucks, here's 10 bucks, you know, go do the best you can. This was a major way that this master entrusted his wealth to these servants. It was a major responsibility. And so if these servants were entrusted with money, the question is, well, what is, how does this parable relate to us? What does Jesus entrust to us? Jesus hasn't just entrusted to us something like money, although he has. And he hasn't just entrusted to us the gospel message, this news that we share. Our entire lives are his. He's entrusted to us life. All of it is due to him. We are not our own. And I think this is one of the hardest things for our culture to swallow because we're so independent and we're so into our own thing, right? The you do you kind of world. That the idea that I exist for someone else just wars against our pride. It fights us tooth and nail. Your life is on loan. And we're accountable for ourselves and for how we spend that life to the God who created us. If you just stop and think about that, it's a a sobering thing. But we see that in Scripture all the time, right? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul says, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. All of life is his. That's why later in chapter 25, when, when Jesus separates those who are his people and those who are not his people, the way he determines that is actually how people treated the vulnerable. How do you treat people in prison? Like Jesus cares about how we treat the poor. That's how meshed and how involved in our lives he is, is that those things matter to him and those are things that will actually account for to him. So these servants, they were entrusted with a lot. That's number two. Number three, not all are entrusted with the same amount. Do you notice that? The master entrusts them in a different way, different measurements. He seems to know the ability and the potential of each of these uh, men or women, and so he entrusts them accordingly, five, two, and one. And it kind of turns out he, he did a good job of that. We're not sure what the number one guy was all about, but he only got one for a reason. Now, the the fact that the master does that shows us something about our lives and and about this reckoning and this accounting that we'll have for our life. First, it shows us that this is not going to be uniform. What I mean by that is the way that that we are, are judged by our maker is going to be different. It's not like, well, you, as long as you don't have 100 church absences, you know, 
and you raise 2.5 kids, and you read the Bible this many times, and if you just kind of fill in that standard cookie-cutter judgment, that's not how it's going to work. So the guy with five talents would be unfaithful if he lived as if he were only given three. And we are accountable for what God has entrusted to us in terms of responsibility or influence. And this is what makes comparing our lives to one another so dangerous, doesn't it? Because we've been entrusted differently, and we will personally account for our specific life. You will do you, and God will call you to account for what he's entrusted to you. We have this conversation with our kids a lot, where there are times when we'll ask them to do a task you know, an older, we call them olders and youngers because we kind of have a gap in between the older two and the younger two. And so sometimes we'll ask a task of the older and the younger combined. But what happens oftentimes is the older one does about 95% of the work and the other one is like getting it all back out again and ruining the whole process, right? And there's this complaint like, they're not pulling their weight, you know? And a lot of times it's, we have to say, well, it's because they're four years old. And there's a difference between what we expect from you and what we expect from them because you have different talents, you have different awarenesses, you know more than they do. They can't organize things, they destroy things, that's their job, right? <laughs> and we're trying to help them and we're trying to prepare you up, we're sorry for preparing you up, but it's what we got to do. So they're entrusted differently and these servants are entrusted differently and we are entrusted differently. We have to keep that in mind. That kind of makes hiding behind the crowd not an option, right? If you just kind of feel like you're looking at Susie and you're looking at Joe and you're like, I kind of, I'm somewhere in the middle there, I'm good to go. Not so. Number four, denial is not an option. Denial is not an option. The guy with one talent really gets caught in his own laziness. And he makes excuses by blaming the character of the master. He says in verse 24, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. We know that this is an excuse because all the man had to do to just earn interest was to invest it probably with Gentiles at the time. And Jesus kind of comes back with this clever statement saying, Well, if you knew I was a harsh man... Wouldn't that mean that you would work extra hard to make it at least interest on it instead of shoving it under your mattress and doing nothing with it? So instead of taking responsibility for what he's been entrusted with, he just buried it and lived in denial. Now, you might read this and think, well, this is kind of harsh, you know, like the guy with one talent. That's a rough day. Is it really fair to do that to him? But I, I'd guess if you gave 20 years of wages to your kids and 10 years later you, you, you know, needed a small percentage of that back to care for you in your older age or whatever and you go into their bedroom and they lift up their mattress and there it is, you'd probably be upset. It was poorly invested. Like, what did you do with this? I mean, that's equivalent of somewhere between $800,000 and a million dollars if you take an average income for this area. So you'd be upset too. But think about it. This guy ended up with the exact same amount. He literally did nothing. He wasted his life. And we can tell that this is more than a parable by the punishment that Jesus gives to him in the end. He's talking more about more than just a sum of money. This man has wasted his life that was given to him for God's purposes and he spent it on his own purposes. And he wasted his life. So, what can we tell from this parable? We can tell that there's going to be accounting for how we spend our valuable lives. The judgment's going to be person-specific, and denial is not going to be an answer you want to give. And I'm really convinced that this is why the Bible talks about the end so much keeps it in front of us because it's easy to forget about the final meeting with Jesus, isn't it? Life goes so fast. Every person here, every person 
who lives in Santa Rosa and California and the United States and the world will meet their maker. Every one. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. For those of you who aren't Christians, there's this, the assurance of that meeting and kind of the angst that that might cause in you, that's a grace from God. Because God allows each one of us to taste the vanity of living life on our own terms and for ourselves. And if what Augustine said is true, that our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God, then that sense that our life is pointless without God is actually God starving our desire for the desert. Which is a gracious, helpful, good thing to do, right? God will interrupt your desire for the outer darkness and give you a stable purpose. Notice that all of the people in this story are his servants. All of them. Whether they were faithful or unfaithful. So maybe this morning, if you don't know Christ and you're not really sure what's going on with this, ask some questions. Dig into this. Understand it first before you reject it. But for the Christian, this also gives us a question to consider when life's pressures really press us, right? If we asked, how will this affect my final meeting with Jesus? That would be really clarifying, I think, in our hearts and in our minds. Will this make me a more faithful steward of my life or a more frivolous one? One of the examples uh, came to me last night when I was playing Fortnite with my son. Okay, I'll just publicly confess that. But Fortnite is a video game, and there's this, this, you're on this island, and you're fighting these other people, and whatever, you can pick, pick at me if you want for playing that or not. But regardless, there's this kind of ever-enclosing circle. It's this storm that's coming. And you can get so busy playing the game and getting resources and getting weapons and building stuff and doing all these things that you totally forget. That, and it's... it's it's really insulting. It's really humiliating because it's like everybody knows it's out there. You can watch it kind of close, but you get so busy doing stuff and so excited. You can forget about the storm that's closing in. And that's a bit like what this parable is trying to do, saying there's an end to this. There's a final meeting, which is why Psalm 90:12 helps us so much when it says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We spend our lives well. Now, what does it look like to live in a way that kind of has this end in mind, has this final meeting in mind? What examples are out there? I would point us to the Apostle Paul. This is our example. He was mindful of this meeting. Here's how he's qualified. Let me read a couple of verses to you to show that Paul is a good guy to look to actually have his mindset about this. In Acts 20, 24, he says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. If only I can finish. And now listen to what he says in 2 Timothy 4, 6-7. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering... And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I'm expecting a well done, good and faithful servant. How did he do that? Listen to 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. Paul says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. That sound familiar? But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. He's talking to the Corinthians. We're having a, they're kind of cranky at this point. He says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Do you see how Paul is qualified to be an example of this for us? So here's what I want to do. And this could take way too much time, so I'm going to try to be super fast. But I think this might be helpful to look at what are the different areas that Scripture says we need to be faithful in. And using Paul as our example, like, break this down. What are you talking about specifically? You know, how, what does a life of faithfulness look like? 
Six things, okay? Yourself, family, good news, the church, community, and work. I'll go over each one of those really quickly. First, we're a steward of ourselves, of our bodies, of our minds, of our consciences. We'll give account for what we do when we feel like our conscience is irritated by something, whether we act or whether we don't. Paul says about his body in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. About his mind, he says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. In his conscience, Acts 24.16, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. 2 Corinthians 1.12, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. So there's a sense in which we will give account for ourselves, for how we treat our bodies, for what we think about, for what, what, what we do with our conscience when it's pricked and when it's steered a certain direction. That's why deacons need to have clear consciences before they serve. That's why Paul says to Timothy to keep watch on yourself and on the teaching. And it's why Hebrews 9 says that the blood of Christ actually uh, cleanses our defiled conscience. Because we'll give an account for ourselves. The second thing is family. We'll be accountable as stewards over a family. If that's something that you have. Now, Paul didn't have a family, obviously, um, because his assignment didn't involve that. The Lord kind of decided he would be singly devoted to this purpose of getting this gospel message out, but he still commands it as an area of faithfulness for those who would be married. When he says in Ephesians to walk worthy, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and the calling of that, he starts talking about how you treat your spouse and how you treat your kids and how you go to work. There's an element that walking worthy involves our families, which is why of elders or leaders in the church, it says he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So there's an assumption that the care of our families is just a, is a part of our stewardship. In Ephesians 5, there's a picture of Christ presenting the church in her beauty, and he uses the, the husband and wife as the husband presenting his wife for her beauty. Third, there's a good news stewardship, a, a gospel stewardship that we have. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 3-4, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel... So we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And you think, well, yeah, well, he was like super apostle evangelist guy. That's not me. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 19 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And listen to this, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We've been entrusted with a message to share. Number four, to be a steward of the church. A steward of the church to serve in this community, to be a part of this community. Paul is a great example of this. He says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, meaning if, if I get whacked for the gospel, for your good, I'm okay with that. That's the amount of love that he has for this church. Now listen to what it says about us in 1 Peter 4.10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now we need to talk about this one a little bit. Because this can get weird. People can, can think that they're in a better position with God because they go to everything that the church does. And we don't want that. You probably shouldn't come to everything if you actually think about the full balance of all this in your life. 
There are times that it's really important to be close to the church and heavily involved in this ministry. If you're a new Christian, you really need probably to be close. You need to be involved and engaged. You need to learn how to be a good steward of your life and all the different pieces of it, right? But I would say even more importantly that you need to be known here. And you need to know others here. We're not just about extracting time from your life and money from your budgets. God help us if our church becomes that. We're here to raise and, and raise and make disciples. We want you to have this full picture of your responsibility before Christ so that when we meet him as elders and as leaders of this church, we can say, we were faithful. We didn't hoard people and hoard their time and all this stuff. We called them to the full sense of what God wants from their life, not just what we need, what God wants. So there's not a, 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 an answer I can give to you. We'll spend 3.5 hours. Some, like next, in a couple weeks, Bible Adventure Week is going to take a lot of our time. And it's going to be really hard. And we're okay with that. Because there's things that are worth lots of our time, right? And lots of our energy. Like helping kids to meet their creator. That's really important. That's worth putting our lives on hold for a while. But there are times when we, we, we need to back off the gas. And if we're sensing that, that, that the other areas of your life or our life are out of whack, and, and you're here like all the time, we'll probably send you away. Saying, go out there. Be faithful out there in these other areas, right? We want this full picture of this. So that's number four. Number five is a steward of your community. I don't have time to even get into this, but how you suffer in front of people. Are we hospitable to people who we're just getting to know in our community? What kind of influence and example are we having? Are we submissive to our government, like the scripture calls us to? There's a role, a sphere of influence that we have in our local community that the Bible calls us to. And last, how about work? Work. Paul's example is a great one. In 2 Thessalonians 3, he says this, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Well, what's that tradition? For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Our workplace is a place of ministry. It's a place that Christ cares about. That how we act there and how we interact with people there matters to God. You know, in Titus chapter 2, it he talks about how someone adorns the doctrine of God. You think, well, this is surely someone who's like really close to God and really close to Jesus. And you know who he's talking about? A slave who's acting a certain way in front of his master. That slave is adorning the doctrine of God. Because how we work matters to God. It's a part of our stewardship. So, did you catch all those? Self, family, good news, the church, our local community, and work. Now, I hope that list helps you. I, I didn't put God on the, at the top of this list because this, this is his list. Okay? So he's not just like, like a compartment of our lives that we have to you know, check off. And it's like the way we think about ourselves and our families and our local communities is with the aim of pleasing him. Does that make sense? So he's not on the list because it's his list. We're his. That's how that works. So I don't want to confuse you just by making a compartment of that, okay? Maybe there's an area that I listed there that you haven't really thought about as an area of stewardship that may need some attention. Maybe hearing it all together makes you want a more well-rounded life. You know, it's really easy to prioritize the areas of our lives where people on earth hold us accountable. So like work you know a review's coming, right? And so if it's easy to think 
I'm going to pour into my work more and more and more because my boss is going to sit me down and look over the past year and actually, but your family doesn't give you a review. Like people sharing the gospel, uh, you're sharing the gospel to don't say, oh, well, you're, you're doing a, a pretty good job of this. Like, keep being faithful. We'll keep talking about you. Know, we, we don't get accountability from all the areas of our life. And so it's easy just to think, I'm just going to cover the areas that I know I'm going to be accountable for now. It's easy to do things that will help you feel good about you or to do things that avoid awkward situations like when following your conscience means that others will be disappointed to hear that you're struggling with a certain sin. Like when evangelistic efforts interrupt our Sunday naps. Like when your family is begging to skip church or to commit to an activity that will pull you away from it consistently and you're kind of torn between those two things. Like when you're not satisfied with how you look physically, but your priorities and other things keep you from being overly vain about that. Like when the coworker's retirement opportunity or party gives you an opportunity to witness, but your life group's that night, and so you take the safe way out and go to your life group instead. See, all these areas bump into each other. And they all conflict, and they all vie and fight for time. And we need Christ to know what faithfulness looks like. I can remember one time in, in college, um, it was the, I think, the only C I got in college. And I remember it was a Psalms class, uh, uh, book of Psalms, and uh, Dr. Curtis was this old guy who had this southern drawl, took him forever to say a sentence. Like as a guy who talks fast, which I apologize for, but it's just kind of who I am, it, it was just like, come on. Keep t- you can, you know, but he just had his way. He was this old guy, just, you know, he had his thing. And he taught Psalms, and I remember it was a semester that Bree had a lot of medical problems, my wife. And so I was at the hospital, and I was ping-ponging between ministry and her, and, and it was just, it was crazy. I mean, it was crazy. And so I came to him just, just frustrated that I couldn't put more time to this, and I, I'm getting these papers back, and I know they're not what they're supposed to be. And, and I remember asking for some leeway. And he said, I'm not going to give you any leeway. You did C work and you got a C. Well, shoot, that's a pretty good reason, you know, like, all right. And he said, look, excellence is not being perfect in everything. Excellent and being faithful to Christ is, is, is taking a look at the whole of your life at the same time, don't treat this like each individual thing you should be perfect in. This C, God will approve of because it means that you're caring about your wife. And I tell you, that was the most helpful thing, one of the most helpful things I learned in college. It was from my C, from Dr. Curtis. The whole picture, the whole table Perfectionism is satanic. <laughs> what is it going to mean to be faithful to Jesus Christ on that final day? Do you think he's going to care about your C? <laughs> it's like, that's a fair point. All right. And I just took my medicine and I grew from it. I was helped a lot. So we need balance to this. We need a biblical balance. And so two encouraging things to finish. You might be thinking, where in the world is simplicity? That's fair, okay? We haven't even talked about the church distinctive. Because you get that in order to set that up, in order to explain why we have this distinctive, you have to have that view of life, of all the different areas that we're responsible to before God. So two, two encouraging things. First encouraging thing is this distinctive that we have. What's the church's role in this? How are we actually going to do this? Well, we say that we fight for simplicity in our programming and all this stuff because we want that holistic life for you and for us. It's our attempt for our body to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And so we want to encourage that faithfulness. Listen to Colossians 1, verses 28 to 29. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. 
For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul, present everyone mature in Christ. That was his goal. So how do we live out the simplicity doctrine? Well, we celebrate faithfulness in other areas of life. If you make a kingdom-minded decision to go to that retirement party instead of your life group, praise God for that. You want to be an influence out in the world. We celebrate faithfulness in other areas of life. We teach on biblical commitment. We call on people to serve. And then we trust God for that. We're not into manipulation. We're not into guilt-tripping people. We trust that God is going to convict his people in the way that he wants. And we're not going to get weird about that. We know we're one of those six things, right, as the church. And that's important. We need to teach that and be clear about that. And we are. We'll try to match up the body's willingness to serve with what we take on as a church. We don't want to overextend ourselves. You see, you're the ministry. You realize that? As a pastor and elder, my job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, not to do the ministry myself. And so if the body is not prepared and willing and ready to take on ministry, then we're not going to do it because you're the engine. You're the minister's. And so we have to be careful about how much we take on and we try to match those things up. We try to avoid cluttering up people's schedules and we take breaks at things. We ask people to actively participate. We expect you to follow through and we're okay with a no. Okay? Let's just kind of throw that out there. You can't do it? You can't do it. Tell us that. We're good. We're fine. If you can, sign up. Do it. Follow through. Be faithful to that. We evaluate things to make sure that the stuff we do matters and we're not just wasting our time doing stuff. It needs to fulfill our mission. Does this help us to worship, walk, and witness like we say in our mission statement? You see, this doctrine of simplicity is your friend. This is a way that this helps you. It teaches you. It trains you. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't just create margin in your life or to fill up with whatever. Like we were at the beach yesterday and our kids were trying to dig holes in the sand. And as soon as you try to dig a hole in the sand, if you don't stick something there, the sand goes back over the hole, right? And so the purpose of this doctrine is not just to create more space in your life so you can commit yourself to more reality television, okay? That's not what we're doing here. We're trying to have a simplified model of ministry so that you can put those things in your life that Christ is going to say, this is a part of your faithfulness to him. We, we want that for you enough to be simple in what we're doing. I hope that makes sense. So there are times when skipping an event is a good idea. There are times when working your tail off is a great idea. And I'm not going to simplify it for you. There's times that working an 80-hour a week is a good idea. There are times when your neighbor's need for the gospel trumps our Sunday afternoons. There's times to eat out and vacation too. And I can't tell you how that's all going to work. There's not a simple answer here. And I'm struggling right along with you to figure out how to do this in a way to be faithful to Christ. But we don't want to be a self-serving church. We want to be a disciple-making church. We don't want to hoard you and keep you in. We want to send you out. So that's our view of that. Hopefully that's encouraging to you. Hopefully you'll be helped as you spend time in our church to be faithful to what the Bible calls us to. One last word of encouragement. You might be dizzy by now. You think, man, I feel like I've got to do 25 million more things. Okay? So if that's you, as I looked at Paul's life, I also saw a couple of things that were underlying all this stuff that he did that I think drove his ability to be effective in these different ways. And they're simple things. That's why I thought we'd finish simply. Okay? Here they are. Paul first, Paul relied on God to maintain and keep him balanced. Listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. He didn't just spin out and, you know, soap operas all day. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I think, wow. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. God's grace fueled his efforts. In 2 Timothy 1, he says, But I am not ashamed, for I know for whom I believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Did you hear that? 
God guards what he entrusts to us. See, the one breakdown of this parable, and parables are only meant to teach one thing, which was kind of the guy with the one talent. That was the real purpose. But the breakdown of the parable is that the master travels with us. He, come, he comes alongside his servants and says, yeah, here's what I really would like you for you to do, and here's some strength to do that, and here's some grace to do that, and no, don't do that. Come pull back from that a little bit. And he kind of walks with us, and he travels with us to help us steward the things that he has entrusted to us. He explains what he means, and he helps us accomplish exactly what he desires. Does that make sense? So Paul relied on God to maintain and to keep him balanced. Also, Paul, secondly, Paul aimed at God's pleasure first and the approval of others second. He aimed at God's approval first and the approval of others second. He didn't just blow people off. There's like a half dozen times, he says, in the New Testament, I'm, I'm doing this for their approval. Or this will, this will look honorable, so I'm going to do it this way. 1 Corinthians 10 31 to 11, 1 says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So his pleasure, he didn't just blow people off. He said, No, I'm trying to please God. His glory is primary, it's first, it's the ace of spades. But as I do that, I care about what's serving people. And I want to be helpful to them. And so I'm willing to become weak to the weak. And I'll, I'll, I'll do what I need to do in order to be a servant. So let me just ask quickly, as you balance your priorities, where is your aim? Is your aim at God's pleasure first and the approval of others second? I have to ask myself this so much. What would please the living God right now? I just have to ask that again and again and again and again because I'm so forgetful. It's so irritating. <laughs> God, what do you want? God, what do you want? What, what's going to matter? What's going to make that final meeting go well? He's aimed at God's pleasure first and the approval of others second. Last, Paul was following an example this is massively encouraging to me. <laughs> Paul had an example. It was Jesus. And Jesus is our example. That means we have access to the kinds of information we need to live a grace-paced life. And not panic and not be hectic and not be crazy. Jesus was more busy and more at rest at the same time than anyone there were days that he was exhausted, but he was obedient. He lived 33 years and accomplished more than anyone ever has. He found his life by losing it. Jesus is our example in this. To wrap it up, I just want to read Matthew 18, 1 through 4, and I want you to chew on this. The subtitle of this text is, Who is the Greatest? As I thought about that, it might be, who is most likely to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant? It's kind of a subtext that I inserted in there. But here's what it says. It's from Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Why don't we pray for that as we wrap up? Lord Jesus, you understand the complexity of these competing priorities in our life. You have walked in our shoes and, and done more ministry and had more demands on you than anyone has. And yet you were persistent in obeying your Father. And you heard the people who 
others said weren't worth your time. And you had the wisdom and the discernment to know we need to move on from this town and go to the next one. So Father, we ask you to help us to be like your son. There are not easy answers to this. But, but you do give us signposts. You do uh, lay some things down in your word in terms of what it means to be a faithful steward in our lives that are helpful to us. And so far beyond just creating some weird legalistic rule and, and spreadsheet, help us to have those, those fixed signposts in our minds and hearts as we grow. Help us to figure this out together. Uh, to, to, to challenge one another when we're, when we're slacking, frankly. Or to be the voice of reason that says, how, how, how much are you trying to do in your life? Or how, how is your life with God? How is your marriage doing? How are your friendships? God, give us the courage to be a community of people who are committed to your view of life, to your balance and not our own. God, we would go to extremes and we would feed things that, that, that will send us in, in, a, in a direction that will neglect areas that we will give an account for. And so God, this morning we ask for your help for the resolve to be like children, to remember that you're near to us, that you desire to help us, and you'll give us the courage to live by convictions and to, so that we get the end of our lives and we can say we finished the race. We've completed the ministry that you assigned to us in all of its complexity. Only you can do that. And so we ask for your help in this. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.